So I, I was born in 1969, and I know that makes me old compared to some of you. Some of you win the prize. But uh, for me, I remember growing up and hearing uh, these fables put out by a guy named Aesop. Aesop's Fables. Have you, you, you've heard of him? And I, I think that he has kind of diminished in his popularity. He used to be really the, the really cool thing. Uh, but way back then, uh, he, he was the guy who wrote The tor- Tortoise and the Hare, uh, The Ant and the Grasshopper. Uh, and the, one of his best-known fables is the, the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? It's the story of the boy who cried wolf. And this is a story of a shepherd boy who was really like many young boys that got very easily bored. He, he had the job of watching the sheep out there. And after a while, he just got bored out of his gourd. And he thought in his mischievous kind of uh, maybe pre-teenage, teenage years, hey, I've got a way to kind of make things interesting. He was informed that if there is ever a wolf that would come, you are to cry out and we will come and we will help out. And so this boy, this mischievous boy, decided, you know what? I'm bored. I need some attention. Let's see what we can get the community people to do. And so he started crying wolf. There was no wolf at all attacking the sheep. And so he cried wolf. And of course, you know, all the people come and start rushing and just say, where is it? Where is it? Because their livelihood depended on those sheep. There's no wolf. Three times he did this. Cried wolf. And the villagers each time would come. Each time they would come. And they'd go, where's the wolf? And of course you can imagine as any parent would, you get tired of these games. Finally, After pulling this prank a number of times, he actually confronted, was confronted by a wolf. This time when he calls out, wolf, 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 of course, nobody came to help. And if you look in uh, some of the various versions, of course, the the primary version is, what does the wolf do? It devours uh, the sheep. It destroys them. But in some versions, not only does the wolf devour the sheep, It also devours uh, the boy. So, Aesop then offers up kind of a moral. He was was a very good moralistic kind of guy, uh, saying this, that even when liars tell the truth, they are never believed. The liar will lie once, twice, and then will perish, even when he tells the truth. This phrase, cry wolf, is now... uh, a common idiom for our day and age, right? There, there are, uh, I put it out there on Facebook, and it's obvious uh, that we even have people on various ends of the political spectrum who will say, oh, this is crying wolf, or this is crying wolf. Anything from uh, global warming to fake news, you name it, everything in between. I even had uh, a mother who... Uh, said, when my, my child is screaming bloody murder at, at an open fridge, and you think, oh my gosh, what's going on? And it just so happens they just want milk. Where's the milk? And it's like, oh, are you serious? I'm not going to come anymore when you're, you're screaming for a glass of stupid milk. But most of the people, to connect it to our, our text this morning, most, 
Most in Amos's day was pretty sure that Amos was crying wolf. That he was this, he was this uptight alarmist. He was a, a, a gloom and doom, a dark and grim kind of preacher who was making a lot of noise, but there was really, he wasn't really making much sense. There was no real reality. In fact, if you looked at the life of Israel at that time, they were really doing well. They were prosperous. They were secure. Everything was in order. They were militarily in a very strong place, financially in a great place. They had kind of multi-site places where they could worship God. They were uh, religious in that they showed up. They even observed all kinds of religious holidays that were prescribed. They were doing really well. And so Amos shows up, this this no-name shepherd from, from Judah down south, showed up. And he started giving this message of gloom and doom and judgment. But Amos was no shepherd boy taken off the pages of Aesop. He was a prophet of God. He was given a message that did not need to be legitimized by the people and their belief in the message. His message was legitimate. His message was real and prophetic because his message was God's message. God's judgment would rain down on the nation of Israel. Throughout this message, this this book, his message was preached to the whole nation. And ultimately they would be crushed. But there would be, here's a glimmer of hope, there would be a remnant a few people who believed. And more than likely, I know it's true here, even though some of you will not admit it to my face, a prophecy like this is hard for our 21st century ears. Many of you would just love to have a pat on the butt and just say, go love people. Can't you make something more enjoyable and happy? It's hard for us to believe that God would indeed actually punish his people for their unfaithfulness. But the book of Amos ends with hope. It has to. It has to end with hope. Why? Because despite man's unfaithfulness, the kingdom, hear this, the kingdom of God will always triumph. God wins. That's the good news. God always preserves a a remnant who will be the foundation for his rebuilding his people. And in the end, God, his message, his salvation, and his people will be, be vindicated. And they will live forever. Forever in his presence. For all eternity. So as dark and gloomy as much as Amos has been, it ends with great hope. And it actually ends with victory. But I have to say this before we we get into this. Hope does not exist in a vacuum. It's not just by itself. Hope is not rootless. It's not rootless optimism. Its roots have got to be found somewhere, firm and secure. 
It's, it can't be ungrounded. It's got to be grounded in a truth, or even better, in the person of God. Authentic hope, real hope, lasting hope, comes from God. This hope is based off of His nature, His person, and all of His promises. And so Amos chapter 9 gives us the basis for this lasting real hope. And as you scan through this chapter, as we read through this chapter, you may be thinking that I'm just referring to the last five verses, which I love. I love these, the last five verses of this, this chapter. The promise of the restoration of Israel. But that's not just it. The entire chapter just animates hope. And so he follows through on his judgment as well as his subsequent promises of of a new beginning. Both his, his righteousness and his grace are inseparable. God is absolutely reliable in both because he is. Because of who he is, we have a solid source of profound hope. And with that, Would you stand for Amos chapter 9? Be looking for these glimpses of hope. Of what God is up to. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar. And He said, Strike the capitals till the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig in Sheol, from where shall my hand be? From there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves at the top of Caramel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before the enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. Who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. Who calls upon the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? Declares the Lord. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphor and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful nation, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth, and all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I love these verses. In that day, I will rise, raise up the booth of David. 
that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I'll restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, chapter 7 started with a series of visions. God is doing this. He's giving all these. Kind of, Jesus gives us parables. You know, We need kind of visual pictures. And now, finally, we have a fifth and final one here in Amos chapter 9. And in this, this final vision, this picture, it's given, given to us as a complete and total collapse of the temple. And this is probably a picture not of the temple that is in Jerusalem, but the temples that Israel, Jeroboam II, had built. These temples in Bethel and Dan and Beersheba that they had planted for their convenience so that the the children of Israel don't have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. The building totally collapses on the people. And those who are left, God says, I will kill by the sword. So, so not only it does it come down, and that would be like a, a, a national kind of disaster. It, it would be on Fox News and CNN all at the same time of just, this whole building fell down to all these people and they were destroyed. And not only that, after that, God comes in and says, that's not enough. Those who are still, still alive and who escaped it, I'll take care of them too. What a picture of God. We hear this and go, is that my God? Is is it possible that my God will bring about that kind of judgment? Does he have such a hatred of sin that he is willing to not only allow buildings to collapse, but that he will strike dead those who are sinful. In verses 2 through 4, there's, there's even this attempt to hide from God, right? But it's futile. It, it, it doesn't matter if they dig a hole. It doesn't matter if they climb uh, the highest mountain out there or go to the very bottom of the sea in their scuba gear, which I don't think they had at that time. God is ultimately going to find them. There is no place that these people could hide. And this section, as I was reading it, I go, man, that that is bleak. But we also have another kind of reminder in Romans chapter 8. 
If you remember Romans chapter 8, the situation in Romans chapter 8, for those who are found in Christ, it's, it's a totally different picture. It talks about the Apostle Paul says, there is no place, no height, no depth, nor any place in all of creation where a believer can be separated from the love of God. So you have those who are, are, are self dependent who, who, who believe that they are their own God, that the sin, they, I can define what is sin. I can define what is right. I can define what is worship. And God is saying, no, you continue down that path. And I'm going to tell you, there is a guarantee that there's no place that you can hide. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, God is saying, listen, there's no place that you can hide from his love. And for, for me, I'm just going, that is amazing hope. For those who are in Christ. So in Amos, there there was no place where where the unfaithful can go to separate themselves from God either. He said, listen, I am going to search you out and I am going to take you. I'm going to take you out. So even as bad as this exile and captivity will be, that they are going to be drugged off into some kind of Assyrian kingdom where they are going to be the slaves and servants and the workers and the mines and the places of just terrible kind of life. As terrible as that will be, that will not even provide them cover from God. God will also hunt them down there. And he says, listen... I'm giving my word on it, for I am the Lord God of hosts. God is swearing by his own name, by my character, by my promises. This is going to be so. Just, and it's going to be as devastating as the rise of the Nile River that floods its banks and creates destruction in its wake, so is going to be for Israel in that day. And then God says to those who are so sure that they're safe, He says, listen, you're not safe. Even though you think that, man, I took you out of Egypt and you, you think that, man, God did all this work for us to take us out of bondage, to put us in the land flowing with milk and honey. God is not going to screw around with us. He's not going to defeat us. He's not going to bring about destruction. We're special people. And God is saying, um, I think you've got it wrong. You, that is misguided thinking. There, you are no more exempt from punishment than those pagan Cushites. Because those pagan Cushites, I moved them around. I brought them from this place to this place. I brought these people from this place to that place. Listen, I'm going to shoot down your false notion that I'm going to spare you because of all the work I went through. And the reality is, you know what, that wasn't a lot of work for me. And that wasn't difficult. So he pops their bubble. And the point being that their exodus from Egypt out of slavery did not guarantee God's favor forever for Israel. Did you see that in verse 8? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful nation. (laughs) Who is he talking about? Them. 
and I will utterly destroy it from the surface of, of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy, glimpse of hope, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There will be a remnant. And they will be saved. How? And who are these people? And verse, verses 9 and 10 kind of answer these questions. For behold, I will command and shake, shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one who shakes a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the people's sinners of my people shall die by the sword who says disaster shall not overtake us. So God is going to put all of his people in this sieve. And we know what a sieve is, right? You're going to put them in a sieve and you're going to, you're going to shake it out. And only the thing, normally what happens is the good stays in the sieve. But God says, no, I'm going to shake it and the good is going to fall out and stay in this land of promise and hope and enjoy. But those that remain in the sieve, what am I going to do? I am going to throw them out. Military conquest is going to put to death those sinners. But we've got to ask, but isn't the remnant, the faithful, aren't they also sinners too? Of course they are. But the difference between the two groups comes, comes to light in the last part of verse 10, where those who are going to be killed by the sword still aren't convinced that they are so bad. And I think that's really the reality for many in the church, isn't it? I'm not so bad. Because we love to do the comparison game, don't we? Well, compared to Carol Casper, I'm not so bad. Right? Oh, you're welcome. Sir. Or may, may, maybe, you know, Eric Bailey, you look at his lifestyle, you know, he's kind of this gamer kind of guy. He's on Twitter way too much. I am not as bad as him. Or we might go outside of the church and we love to do the comparison game. But God says, listen, I am not into that game that you're playing. I am looking at your heart. I am looking at you. You are in my crosshairs right now. So stop playing the comparison game. Stop saying, listen, disaster isn't going to overtake me because I am not so bad. What they are saying is, I refuse to believe what God is saying is true about me. And I refuse to take God at His word. So ultimately... They're caught in the sieve and they're thrown away. And so if we called the end of verse 8 kind of a, a little bit, a, a glimmer of light, kind of a glimmer, listen, I, he's going to destroy the nations except just these. If that, if that is just a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of light that God in his righteousness will actually come through on his promises against his hate of sin, if that is a glimmer, then the final verses of Amos are like the floodlights. They are the floodlights. It is like the sun itself shining in its summer July kind of heat. 
just bearing down. It's like, oh, look at this moment. And, and this section shouldn't leave us scratching it and saying, okay, so where did this come from? Where does this come from a God who is speaking? It comes from a God who is speaking prophetically as he has done throughout all of Amos. The ultimate end of God's story is always, always hear this, always triumph. And it's no different in the book of Amos. In fact, let me give you if, you, if you're looking for an easy way to remember what is the story of the Bible, get ready, two words. God wins. That's the, that's the story of the Bible. Ultimately, it's from Genesis to Revelation, and it comes to this final culmination of God winning. You want to know what the book of Revelation is about? It's not about all this end time blood moons and all that kind of weirdo stuff. It is ultimately a story of God's triumph, his winning and receiving all the praise and glory that is due his name. Christ is always at the center of the story. He is the one sitting on the throne right next to God the Father. And everybody is gathered around this throne and they are doing what? They are worshiping him. It, that is the story. So as the sons and the daughters of God, we get to do that. We're a part of that story of triumph and victory. And this is what we have in the closing verses of Amos. Some of you have been waiting for this. There's hope. Amos sees David's kingdom destroyed, right? It was, it was split up. It was divided. There's civil war. Now they have two kings, two kingdoms, different places to worship. It's basically destroyed. And then God is going to take the northern ten tribes and He is going to obliterate them. There might be a little bit of a remnant, but basically they're gone. And then ultimately, at the end, in, in verse 11, we get this picture of... This kingdom, although it is being destroyed, it is now going to be renewed. It is going to be rebuilt through the restoration of David's fallen booth. And in in talking of David this way, Amos is referring to God's promise given in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That he would establish this throne of his kingdom forever and ever and ever. It is pointing ultimately to Jesus. This is messianic language. Speaking of the Messiah and his eternal kingdom. That is why more than just the nation of Israel is being spoken of here. That David's throne is going to rule the the nations. The whole world, the whole kit and caboodle is Jesus's. There's not one square inch where God doesn't say, that's mine. He says, it's all mine. Every square inch is mine. In other words, if you look at, I just love these pictures. Verse 13, you you get this this picture of, behold, the days are coming. And, And it is kind of an agricultural kind of story going on. The plowman, in other words, the one who breaks up the land to prepare for the next round of seeds the plowman is overtaking the one who is reaping in other words it's like they can't keep up 
There is so much harvest coming in that they're going over time. And the plowman is saying, dude, are you done yet? Are you done? Because we're ready to get the ground ready. Because this is normally when we should be out here. And the, the reapers are going, oh, no, not yet. There is so much bounty going on. There is so much good. There is so much fruit. It is flowing and flowing and flowing. In other words, the bounty and the harvest, because of the fruitfulness of the land, will be so great that the systems are all not working as they used to. And I, love, I, I was going to I was gonna bring something to church this morning. I thought, no, I'm, I'd be pushing too many buttons. But there, there's this image. Did you pick that up? After the talking about the plowman and the trader of grapes, the mountains shall drip what? Not Welch's, right? Sweet wine. The mountains, which are often barren places, they shall drip with sweet wine. And not only that, all the hills shall flow with it. What a picture. Often when, when wine is used as a picture in the Bible, it is a description of something that makes the heart glad. It's a, Jesus said at the wedding of Canaan, you know, he did not give them just some bad Mogan David wine. He gave them the best of the best. And he supplied it in abundance where, where even the people at the party are going, are you off here? Usually the best wine is served at the beginning and the junk is served at the end because nobody can tell the difference. And God is saying, listen, I am going to be pouring out gladness in your hearts. There's going to be this amazing beauty. And it even sounds, if you really read into this, this sounds like a a fruitful garden, doesn't it? And when we think of gardens, we should immediately go back to what garden? The Garden of Eden. It's going to be the Garden of Eden all over again. And so you should be thinking about this. For what is being spoken of here is not the return of the nation of Israel to this small little sliver of land in the Middle East. That's not what this is about. So if you get some weird prophetic voices in your head and, and you're going, oh, this is all about Israel and got to have this land. That's not what this is about. This is ultimately talking about the fallen world, the broken world being restored to what it was in Eden before the fall. God is going to restore all things for all people. So Amos has expanded his view. He's kind of blown it out. Judgment is coming. And it will come for in 722 B.C. And that's kind of the immediate, the right here kind of primary message of Amos. But when judgment is over, when, when, when it is all done and through, God has Amos speed forward, flash forward ahead to the final stage of human history. The thing that we as a people need to be longing for. Man, your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, Lord. Lord, make 
all things new. Would you restore this world? Israel had lost her land, everything for that matter. And, and as a, it was a penalty for her behavior. Judgment was, was a result of her behavior. And that was the immediate context. That was the immediate message. But notice how it ends. God's people's restoration is being prophesied without regard to their behavior. Just as the Lord will bring judgment against his sinful people, he's always good to his word, so he will also prosper them. In verse 15, I will plant them. I will plant them in their land, and they will never again, I love it, never again be uprooted out of the land that I will give them says the Lord your God. So let's unpack that. How does this all work out? Let's go back to that remnant idea. Even in the time of Amos, during the reign of King Jeroboam II, there was a minority, a small group of believers who passed as kind of kernels of wheat or corn through the sieve that which is to be collected on the floor, but is, most of Israel was pebbles and chaff. This is a scary picture, as I think about it, when it comes to the church, and even our local church. If God would shake us out, where would we land? Where do you think? Well, I hope not, but that's possible, right? If we don't have a relationship with Christ, that is where our eternal destination is. Israel was pebbles and shaft. One commentator referred to them as, and I quote, complacent, careless sinners living in a world of pretense and make-believe. Complacent, careless sinners living in a world of pretense and make-believe. And that was the majority of people in that day. And I'm scared to say, but it's probably true. It's also probably true of the church of Jesus Christ today. A lot of complacent, careless sinners who are living in a world of make-believe. Who refuse to believe God's message. But there were some, there were some who knew disaster was coming. They did so because they believed God's messenger, his prophet. They knew that they were sinners too, not always living as the Lord would have them. They were honest about themselves. The difference between them and who did not listen was that they actually confessed their sins. They confessed their sins. They grieved when they knew that they grieved God. There was a brokenness in their lives of, I hate sin. God hates sin. Oh, let's be honest about it. I am a liar. I'm one who consumes. I'm one who... Abuses, I'm the one who you fill in the blank. And we are honest about it. Those people 
wanted to live a life unto God. Take my life, Lord, and let it be. Have my whole self. Take my life. And I want to live obediently to you. So God has always preserved a remnant, his remnant. But the large majority began to fall away. But God still preserved a small majority from which he would build up his people again. And you can see it all throughout church history. The common thread, my friends, is that a faithful remnant remnant knows that God is holy. And that man, by himself, on his own, is not. And there will always be judgment on sin. A faithful remnant knows that saying, I belong to God. When they say that, they know that it means their heart belongs to God. Their affections belong to God. Their priorities belong to God. Their financial resources are God's. Their time, their talents, their treasures, the the gifts that they have been given are God's. Faithful followers of Christ, my friends, are not complacent. They don't sit still. They don't become comfortable with their relationship with God. And they don't just show up on Sunday and go live the rest of their life as if it was theirs. Their whole life is the Lord's. Their relationship with Him means absolutely everything. To be without Christ is to be dead. And so there's good news that is being offered here. And verses 11 through 15 absolutely thrill me. There's this picture in verses 11 through 12 that God is doing this, this, this expanding kingdom. So although the exile is going to send the, the dynasty of David off into exile, into chaos, into ruin, God is going to do something absolutely amazing with those who are remaining. He is going to raise it up and he, he is going to rebuild it. I'm going to raise up this booth of David and I am going to repair it. I'm going to make it beautiful like in the days of old. So this booth refers to a dwelling place. And it was really a very simple structure. It was a place that David or Jacob uh, built for his livestock after building his own home. It was a place that Jonah built for himself when he was pouting over the whole Nineveh thing. And it was a temporary structure the people were to live in during that seven-day festival, the Festival of Booths. These booths provided shelter and shade, but they were temporary. And they pointed to the wilderness wandering. That's what it was like. Remember? Remember those days? In other words, the Lord is saying, remember those days when I provided? We're going to start it all over again. I'm going to bring you back to the status That we had when you were under David. Victory. Life. We win. 
But even more than being reconstructed, the kingdom will also expand. Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Edom, if you remember going all the way back, Edom was one of the long-standing enemies of Israel. They were one of the nations that Amos pointed out when he began his message of judgment. And David was the only king to conquer Edom. And because of this, Edom became a picture throughout all prophetic literature of this comprehensive reign of the coming Messiah. Edom is representative of the the defeated nations, but Amos declares that there will even be a remnant of faithful people in that lost and broken world. And not only among Edom, but all the nations, all the nations who I've I've called by name, God is saying. The Lord is going to ensure that the promises that he gave to Abraham are going to be fulfilled in this restored kingdom. You're going to be a father of many nations. And God is saying, you're going to see this come true. So this, this future son of David that we know from Matthew chapter 1 is Jesus, this future son of David, will take possession of this heritage and it will include all the nations of this world. In him would be fulfilled all the promises to Abraham back in Genesis 17. You'll be the father of a a whole multitude, a whole world of nations. And then you see it just kind of, it explodes if you have a New Testament eye. At the Jerusalem Council, which is found in Acts chapter 15. James, the brother of Jesus, quotes this very passage to speak of the expansion of the kingdom to Gentiles. He says, after they finished speaking, James, brother of Jesus, replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name, And with this, the words of the prophets agree as it is written. And notice what he makes obvious about Edom in his quote. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by not my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Edom is now replaced with mankind. And James makes it absolutely clear that they are seeing this with the conversion of Gentiles. I don't think that we have any Jews here. We are all benefactors of this promise. As Gentiles. And that work remains of reaching the nations, remains until John's vision comes to fruition in the new heavens and the new earth. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people 
for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Friends, that, that's the mission of the church. God is ultimately going to bring together a multicultural. It is going, the color palette is going to be amazing. All the hues that we are going to see, the languages that we are going to hear, the, the different people and the face structures and the body size, all that is all going to be in heaven because God has done this thing. And this is the hope of our mission work as we send and support the Ambroses and the Camiolas. Our work will not be in vain because we know that a remnant of God's chosen people exists in every people group around the world. Our work is not done. So if you are comfortable living in your Lincoln Way area or the, the greater Lincoln Way area and just saying, I'm bringing, building up a kingdom to, to myself where I have all kinds of comfortableness, God is saying, uh-uh. There's work to be done. There are people in every neighborhood that need to hear the gospel. But there's that fear. People are going, man, that sounds like a lot of work and that means that my resources are going to start getting a little thin. Did you hear my resources? My resources are going to start, my time, my talents, my treasures are going to start getting a little thin and it's going to start affecting my comfort. And God says, listen, an expanding kingdom to you might mean that there's a thinning out of resources, but this kingdom will only experience increase. It will be an abundant kingdom. The days are coming, declares the Lord. <laughs> You're going to have wine, and it's going to be flowing from the hills. There, the, the reapers and the plowmen, there's just so much bounty going on. Essentially, the people are, you are going to be unable to keep up with the overflow of crops. Could you imagine what kind of uh, thing would happen if the people of God would actually engage with the mission of God? Living holy lives and desiring to share the good news of people, uh, with the good news of Christ with people all around them. What kind of increase we would experience? You will look at us and say, Vroom, this building's way too small. We, we, we had small sites. The harvest is plentiful, right? Workers are few. So not only will there be an abundance to gather, but the people will also, we will be able to enjoy the fruit of our labor. And there's a reversal that is taking place as God is saying, you're being faithful and there's the, the land that is now, it's going to be bearing fruit as you are desiring to live holy lives devoted to me. Look at what's going to happen. There's going to be reconciliation. There's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be provision. And the amazing thing is 
the only thing that could improve our joy of this expanded kingdom and increased abundance would be an increased time allotted for the enjoyment of that kingdom. And you see that in 15. I'll plant them in that land and they will never again be uprooted. God promises to his people that they will have eternal security inhabiting this land and world. Do you know what the the ultimate goal of this life is not heaven? When I hear people say, I can't wait to get to heaven, it's like, "Uh, you're missing something. God is about restoring this earth. Heaven comes down. God is going to make this world new again. The ultimate game is not to be up there stroking your harp on a little fluffy cloud. That's not it. In fact, you will be disembodied at that point. You will only be a soul in the presence of God. But that day when the trumpet sounds, God says, Woohoo! Here comes heaven. It is coming down. And this is going to be an everlasting physical kingdom that you will bodily enjoy forever. That is what it's about. Get over this heavenly floaty kind of thing. The day where you will be living physically, bodily, with your God, in the presence of Jesus Christ, in a land that is flowing with milk and honey, again, that is the ultimate end. And that is the thing that we are longing for. So in conclusion, my friends, Jesus is going to be establishing a greater kingdom where we are going to be able to enjoy everlasting, abundant blessings. It will be an expanded kingdom. It will be an abundant kingdom. It will be an eternal kingdom. So the entire ninth chapter helps us to just put some grips on our God and to live with hope rooted in His promises that He will judge the unrighteous. There will be a day where ISIS will get their due. There will be a day where those who are absolutely pagans in this world and all about persecuting the church, they will get their due. And God, that is good. That is good news. There will be no more military conquest in this new heaven and new earth. There won't be a need to because God's judgment is done. But you know what we also get? Not only the God of righteousness who demands to live righteously, but also the God who is calling us to live with Him. Friends, God doesn't want our, a second place in his, in his kingdom. He doesn't want second-rate discipleship. He wants our all. Pastor Steve Lawson reminds us this. Grace never produces passive spectators. Grace never produces passive spectators 
of personal holiness. Instead, grace energizes decisive followers of Christ. So Amos' final words of promise are concluded with a remarkable phrase. If you look at it and you, you could just kind of miss it because it's outside of the quotes in verse 15. The phrase is, says the Lord your God. We have a God who is not indifferent to his people. He's not indifferent towards you. He is a personal God. He is a holy God. He is a loving God. He's a God who wants you and is pursuing you. So my friends, in this series, in the book of Amos, the Lion of Judah has roared. That's how it started in Amos chapter 1. Right? If you go back, the Lord roars from Zion. His, he and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the, of the shepherds mourn and the tops of caramel. They, they melt away. They, they wither. So God is calling out to his people. He is calling out. So the, this God, the lion who is roaring from Jerusalem, who thunders from heaven and has thundered from this pulpit, is asking one question. Is he your God? Is he your God? And if he is, the call that you hear from him is to live a holy life that confesses your sin, that agrees with God about sin, that turns from your wicked ways and turns to him And there, my friends, you will enjoy life with him. Is he your God?